Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Easter Sunday 2019. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I uh, moved to Hawaii, I grew up in Arizona. It's not exactly known as a fishing state, uh, Arizona. Uh, My dad, however, grew up in Montana. They know how to fish up in Montana. Uh, So every time that we would take a vacation to go visit Grandma and Grandpa White in Livingston, Montana, I got to fish. That's me in the cowboy hat, just in case you couldn't tell. My grandma and grandpa White had a small boat with an outboard motor, and that's what we would use every time we'd go uh, visit them to go fishing out on Daly Lake. And uh, I don't want to brag, but I was a pretty good fisherman myself. Uh, All right, so maybe I didn't catch all of those uh, single-handedly, but I contributed, right? And I loved going fishing with my grandparents. It was amazing to be with them out on the water in a completely different environment than when we were around the house with grandma and grandpa. And there's a certain kind of camaraderie that comes with fishing, right? Even though you're just sitting there, it's different than when you're sitting somewhere else, like in the living room or out at the pool or even in the swing. There's something about fishing that brings people together. One of the main characters in the scripture reading today, Peter, is fishing out on the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, some 70 miles north of the Dead Sea. And Galilee was the area where Jesus had grown up. And it was where Jesus called most of the disciples uh, when he invited them to come and follow him. Peter had been a fisherman prior to his gig as a disciple, and he fished on this very same lake, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. And now, sometime after that first Easter, Peter is hankering for some more fishing time. I invite you to open your Bibles back up or grab the Red Pew Bible in front of you to John chapter 21. Or again, you can find it on the, on the app in our, uh, on our, on our uh, smartphones. When you click on the Bible link, it'll open right up to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. So let's review the timeline here. According to the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb that first Easter morning, and she found it empty. So she ran to tell Peter and another disciple, most likely John, who saw the empty tomb as well. And then they left, and Mary was left standing at the tomb by herself. And while she was there outside the tomb, the risen Christ met her. Only she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. She thought it was just the gardener. And Jesus, after revealing himself to her, called her by name. She knew exactly who he was. She, he commissioned her to go and tell all the rest of the disciples about his resurrection. Well, later that evening, Jesus appears to the disciples when they're hiding out. They're still worried that uh, the, the authorities that came and got Jesus on Monday Thursday would come to get him, would get them as well. 
Thomas wasn't there, and so when they told him they'd seen the Lord, he didn't believe them, and so Jesus had to come back again so that Thomas could see for himself. And now they're here on a fishing boat in the Sea of Galilee, catching nothing. Now, I'm guessing, however, it's not just the lack of fish that's bothering Peter. There's something else, something that's been digging at him, weighing heavy on his heart for days. He keeps thinking about that night, the night when Jesus was arrested. He remembers his own failure, his cowardice, his abandonment of his closest friend, denying three times that he even knew Jesus. Soon Jesus would be crucified and they wouldn't have the chance to make things right, just the two of them. We've had those moments, haven't we? Times when we've let people down, people we care about deeply. Times we haven't been at our best. Times we've disappointed and hurt others, God, even ourselves. So now, as the sun begins to rise that morning on the Sea of Galilee, Peter notices a figure on the shoreline. The figure says, you kids didn't catch any fish did you? Uh, no, we didn't. And thank you so much for bringing that back to our attention. Um, well, cast your nets on the right side and then you'll find some, the voice says. And I can imagine Peter saying, like, you've got to be kidding me. The right side, like the fish were were not being caught because they were hiding on the right side of the boat the entire night. Like, thank you very much. But before he can say anything, I'm sure that Peter was whisked away emotionally to another time when he was on that very same lake some three years prior and he had spent a similar night, fruitless night fishing, caught nothing. To, uh, the only thing he had to show was a cranky attitude. And someone on the shoreline has the audacity of telling him to go back out and cast his nets in the deep waters on the other side of the ship. Well, that someone was Jesus. And, and, and they brought in this tremendous catch of fish back then, just like the instructions today. That was the day when he first called them to follow. And now, three years later, could it be? And as they bring in this incredible haul after casting on the right side of the, of the boat, the reala- realization hits Peter, this must be Jesus. And so he jumps into the water and he swims to meet his master, the weight of the burden on his back matched only by the size of the lump in his throat. What would Jesus say to him when, after what he had done? Would there be one of those awkward moments where they just stood and looked at each other for a while with fish on a charcoal fire? Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples who by now have rowed back to shore, verse 12, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Which brings us to our scripture reading for day from John 21. And our last question in our current sermon series entitled, Great Questions Jesus Asked. During the season of Lent, over the last six weeks or so, we've been looking at important questions by Jesus. Questions that he asked his followers and others back in his day, but also questions that we're finding are relevant to us here and now, some 2,000 years later. When he first called his disciples, he asked, what are you looking for? And wanting to know what it was that drew them to follow Jesus originally. Before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus asked his disciples, what do you have? It was a reminder for us not to focus on what we don't have, but to look at what we do have. Look at all the resources we have, including the greatest resource of all, Jesus himself who comes to us. 
When he encountered a blind man, Jesus asked the seemingly rhetorical question, what do you want me to do for you? But we discovered that sometimes we need that pointed inward searching to get to the heart of what really is our deepest desires. And then if God would grant that deep desire, would it help draw other people closer to God as well? And then there was the time when the disciples were sailing across this very same lake, the Sea of Galilee, and this great storm arose, and the disciples completely freaked out, and Jesus asked them, why are you afraid? Not because there aren't scary things that happen to us in life, but because we often forget that Jesus is there with us in the boat as we go through the storms of life. By the way, if you want to follow or listen to any of the previous sermons, you can also access on the church app. But today... In John 21, at verse 15, we get our final question of the series. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I think Peter had probably been dreading this moment, the moment that Jesus would bring up his past failure. And no matter how Peter responded, he knew what was going to come next from Jesus. He might say, well, then where were you when I needed you most? Or I thought you said you would never leave me or some kind of friend you turned out to be. And what's up with the more than these part of Jesus question? Is he really asking Peter to compare his love to the love of the other disciples? That's what I thought. When I was first reading this, and then I found something by biblical scholar R.C.H. Lenski in his book, The Interpretation of St. John's Gospel. And he invites us to go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 33. It was the night in which Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, and he was trying once again to prepare them for what was about to take place in the days that followed. And he told them that they would soon be scattered. And Peter boldly said, though all people will become deserters uh, because of you, I will never desert you. I mean, the rest of these guys, they may leave you, Jesus, but you and me, we go back deep. And I'm going to stick with you no matter what may come. And so that morning on the beach after breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, so do you love me more than these, Peter? Huh? These other disciples around you. And we see the lesson that humility has taught Peter in just a few days. And without comparing himself to anyone else like he did that Thursday night, Peter simply replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus has now heard what he needs to hear from Peter, right? And everything is good? Well, not so fast. Verse 16, a second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you know that expression, it ain't over till it's over? Well, Peter's finding out it ain't over yet. And when I was reading Lenski's commentary on Matthew, I came across another insight about this passage that I found fascinating. And it centers around two Greek words that are used here. Jesus uses the Greek word agape when asking Peter, do you love me? Right? So let's just say, do you agape me? Do you love me? And agape is one of the three main words in the New Testament uh, used for love. It describes this kind of perfect, all-inclusive, sacrificial love that God has for us. So when Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? He's asking him, do you love me the way that God loves everybody? And when Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Linsky says, Peter doesn't use the word agape. He uses a different word for love. He uses philios. 
Philios means to have affection for, almost uh, to like a lot. And so Jesus says, do you really love me, Peter, in an all-encompassing, complete, life-changing way? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I like you a lot. I mean, it's not exactly the same, is it? I think sometimes the person that we have the hardest with in our lives is ourselves, right? Because we know the times we've let God and others down. We know our failings, our insecurities, our past screw-ups. Peter knew that too. And based on his past record, I'm thinking that he probably knew he would let Jesus down once, at least once more again. And so he didn't have that agape, all-encompassing, life-changing love. So the best he was able to do is to muster a bit of affection. And almost if we read between the lines, we hear Peter crying out, Yes, I love you, Lord, but please forgive me. Back in 1991, I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Larry Crabb, a noted psychotherapist and author, tell this true story. It was a story about a friend of his who was a pastor. pastor had a son who had grown up and strayed not only from the family, but from the kind of life that he and his wife had tried so hard to, to teach to him. At this point of his life, the son was living in a crack house. He, his life was a steady supply of drugs, sex, and alcohol. And one morning at 3 a.m., the pastor receives a call from the police saying that their son had been arrested and was being held in jail. The officer said that the pastor could come and bail out his son if he desired or they would just keep him there. When he hung up the phone, his wife asked who had called and he explained the situation and they both just cried together. Well, the pastor got dressed, he got in his car, he drove down to the precinct to bail out his son, but when he arrived, he discovered that his son wasn't there. In fact, they said, we have no record of your son being here. And he said, how can that be? I just got a call from you folks. This was the precinct that they told me he was arrested at. No, no, he's never been here. And then they started calling some of the neighbor precincts. And each one that they called said the same thing. No, we have no record of that person being here tonight. He honestly didn't know what to do. So the pastor decided to drive to the section of town that he knew his son was last living at. He found the house. It was in a rough neighborhood. About 20 people lived together in that house. It didn't surprise him at all when he found the front door wide open. Drugs were everywhere. People were lying around, some half-dressed. It was the kind of lifestyle that he so much wanted his son to avoid. But after a quick search, he located his son across the room, sleeping on a couch, and his heart broke. And he said as he walked over to his son quietly, all he could think of doing was to just bend down and kiss him gently on the forehead. And then he was so overcome with emotion, he turned around and quickly left, got in his car, and as he was driving away, just started weeping and weeping again. Seven months later, he got a call from his son who asked him out to dinner. And it was the first time that they had been in communication since he got that phone call from the police. The father had no idea what he was about to Experience And when the son arrived at the restaurant, he noticed he was bright-eyed, clean-shaven, and happy. Completely different from the last time he had seen him. The son explained that he had become a Christian, that he had moved out of that house. He had got his own apartment, got a job, and he was really excited about life. And his dad said, tell me about your job. And he says, uh, later, Dad, I want you to know that I've given my life to the Lord. 
It's been a while now, and I, and I wanted to wait to call you until I knew that it was real. But do you want to know why? His father had no idea. He says, because that night, seven months ago, I wasn't really asleep when you came into the house. And I thought to myself, if someone can kiss me in all of my ugliness, that's the kind of love I need. That's agape love, friends. That's the kind of love that God has for all of us. The same kind of love that Jesus was inviting Peter to step into. The same kind of love that God calls each of us into as well. It doesn't matter what kind of baggage we're carrying around. It doesn't matter what's happened in our past. It doesn't matter how many times we've let God down. Do you love me, Jesus asks. And he invites us to grow deeper in our walk with him. Verse 17, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So it's three times now that Jesus has asked Peter our question of the day. Do you love me? Is Jesus trying to make Peter feel guilty for what happened back in Jerusalem a few days ago? Or or maybe there's something deeper happening here, something redemptive that's taking place. I think that Peter knows that Jesus knows, right? He's been around Jesus long enough. He's seen the way Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. And so Peter, without trying to talk his way out of this situation, just confesses the truth. You know everything, Lord. You know what's in my heart. And more than anything Peter could possibly say, he acknowledges that Jesus knows him, knows him better than he even knows himself. And in that honest confession, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Three times when he asks Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter responds. Three times Jesus gives him a command, feed my lambs. Then he says, tend my sheep. Then he says, feed my sheep. Jesus is using shepherd language. Ministry language, leadership language. I think Jesus is saying to Peter, in spite of your past, I still love you. You're still a part of me, and I still have work for you to do for the kingdom. Not only that, but remember in that one question Jesus asked Peter three times, maybe he was corresponding to the three times Peter denied him, and he said, I love you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Every time you denied me, I forgive you. You see, the mark of a true disciple is that Jesus told his disciples this very same thing. When, when they were together, when he was there eating that, that last dinner in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So if people want to know if we are a Christian, do they see the way we love others? And how, as we say, inspired by Jesus to love, we love because God has loved us first. We have been agaped by God. We have been loved unconditionally with life-changing love. And Jesus wants us to pass that on. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, love others. Because love is more than words that we say with our mouth. It's what we do with our lives. Love is a verb. Last fall, I had the chance to hear Dr. Frank Rogers, a professor at the School of Theology at Claremont. 
we were gathering as a bishop's convocation, so a lot of the clergy from Southern California, Hawaii, Guam, and Saipan. And I had never heard Dr. Rogers before, and man, he is an amazing storyteller. I was so moved by his speaking, I went out and bought his book called Compassion in Practice, uh, The Way of Jesus. It's fabulous. And one of the stories that he tells early on the book is this true story. In January of 1995, Azim uh, Kamiza awakened to find a business card tucked into his door from the homicide division of the San Diego Police Department. Azim called the number on the card. An officer shared with him the tragedy that his only son, a 20-year-old college student named Tariq, he was delivering pizzas during the night in a neighborhood that was known for occasional gang violence. As Tariq sat in his car, another car pinned him from behind and two teens got out. Tony Hicks, all of 14 years old, was handed a gun by an older teen who was the gang leader. Tony was ordered to take down the unknown delivery man, and Tony obeyed. He shot Tariq one time, the bullet piercing his heart, and within minutes, he suffocated in his own blood. The officer had come to inform Azim that his son was found dead at the scene. Well, in the months that followed, Azim struggled with rage, helplessness, despair, even thoughts of vengeance. A devout Muslim, he struggled with the Islamic invitation to resist being consumed by hatred and to find a way to forgive even the unforgivable. He took care not to act out on his anger, but he didn't suppress it. He meditated prayerfully, he sought therapy for his grief, and over time the pain subsided, and Azim said he began to feel this sacred presence that sustained him. The sacred presence grew and grew. It held him and his family, and he believed that it held his son, Tariq. It also held the boy so troubled that violence toward a stranger felt attractive. Well, Azim came to realize that there were victims on both sides of the gun. Not only was his son killed, but also an African-American 14-year-old boy raised fatherless in poverty and ubiquitous racism was tried as an adult and then tossed away into a prison cell for the unforeseeable future. Azim decided that the cycle of despair and violence had to come to an end. So he quit his job. He created a foundation named after his son. He dedicated himself to eradicating the conditions of youth violence in the San Diego area. And teaching young people the peacemaker's path of nonviolence, forgiveness, and restorative justice. He even invited his son's killer's grandfather to come and be a part of his foundation. And then Azim visited Tony in prison. And although he had already felt some forgiveness in his heart, he was very anxious. He didn't know how he would react when he greeted Tony at the jail. He was unsure what he would feel when he saw his son's slayer. He imagined looking into a gang member's eyes and seeing the face of a cold-blooded killer. So he prayed for mercy. And when he entered the visiting booth, Azim looked into the eyes, but he didn't see a killer. He saw a terrified child beaten down by a world stacked against him. Azim, as he described it, he gazed straight into Tony's soul and he saw the boy's humanity. In that moment of connection, both of their hearts broke open and their hearts were touched by God's amazing grace. Azim shared without malice or accusation the grief of losing his only son and he listened to Tony share the pain of growing up fatherless in a gang-ridden ghetto. And he cried for Tony. 
And Tony cried as well, expressing how sorry he was and how he ached for some way to make it up to him. And Tony said, you know, I think there may be a way. 24 years later, when Tony got out of prison, he would work as an advocate against youth violence through the very foundation named after the boy that he had killed. And if you want to find out more information, you go to the, to the Tariq Kamiza Foundation at ktkf.org. It's an amazing story, but brothers and sisters in Christ, on this Easter Sunday, I believe that the resurrected Jesus wants all of us to know that we are loved, deeply loved with God's all-encompassing, all-compassionate agape love. The good news of Easter is also that we are all forgiven. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus. But listen to this as well, that we each have a part to play in God's kingdom. We have a role to do in God's divine plans. For out of that love, we are called to love others, to love one another. Do you love me, Jesus asked. Yes, we say. Then show me by how you love the people around you. That's the message of Easter. That's why we say at Palmdale United Methodist Church, we're inspired by Jesus to love. We've been loved. We are loved. We will continue to be loved by God. And so we're invited to pass that love on to others. It's a great question. Do you love me? May we have the courage to respond with our lives. Amen. Amen.